The irrealis mood is a grammatical category of verbal moods that even linguists find difficult to define and explain. Author Andre Asaman, in his latest book, the essay collection Homo Irrealis, finds a foothold in pinning down this moving target of a concept of time, the what might have been and could still be. In a series of interconnected essays about exile, migration, cities, art, and artists, and living through the stages of life, Andre Asaman shows us that we've all lived in Irrealis all along. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. We learn more about this concept of Irrealis from Andre Asaman himself. I spoke to him from his home in New York City. Andre, I want to ask you first about the title of the book. The title points to the central themes and the central problem of the book, how human beings exist, whether they realize it or not, with the irrealis and what that implies. What is it? It's such a hard thing to to define uh, uh, until it's not. Uh, but can you just explain it briefly? Well, actually, um, the irrealis mood, it's a verbal mood. It's not a tense, it's a mood. Um, and it corresponds to such moods as the subjunctive, which almost does not exist in English, aside from let, uh, you know, long live the king and that sort of thing. Those are subjunctives, but it's more like uh, more um, aligned to the conditional mood, which is I would like as opposed to I will like. Um, the would form takes on many, many, many sort of functions. It could say something like I would have been happy had you da 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 da. Or uh, I might have come to the party had you invited me. The might have, should have, could have, would have, all these are irrealist moods. In other words, they haven't occurred in time. They may never occur. Um, that's what I, I was going for. In other words, the present tense, which is a tense that everybody knows, I am eating, I am studying, I am sleeping, those are definite mood. Um, it's a definite mood. It's called the indicative mood. But most of us, though we aim to live in the present tense, we are actually elsewhere. We're not exactly in the present. We try to be, or we claim to be, but we're not. We're in the future. We're in the conditional future. We are in the past. We're remembering. We're fantasizing. We're constantly drifting from one tense to the other or from one mood to the other. Well, the book Homo Irrealis is a collection of essays, and the word essay means to essay. The idea is that you don't begin writing the piece because you already know what you want to say. You write the essay to figure figure it out, and that's true of other forms of creative writing too, of course, but did you find your way through each essay, whatever the topic was because of this common denominator. I suppose I'm asking you about the structure of the book too, but the, this common denominator of the concept of the irrealis, was was that the driving force as you were assaying um, with each of these uh, very interesting subjects in your book? Well, I had written or had alluded to the irrealis mood in a previous book called Alibis, where the final chapter was essentially a, an, an embarkation into this 
no man's land that doesn't exist. And I found that every time I thought about Beethoven or I thought about Freud or Cavafy or Zebalt, all these great minds were, in my view, and perhaps in my view only, were struggling with the undefined dimension of time. In other words, they were not exactly writing about what happened to them or what they wished might happen, but of something long and far away that could never happen. And so what I was trying to do with Cavafy and Beethoven, and of course, Freud and Eric Romer, the film director, is I was trying to make them say something that they were not able to say and may never have thought of saying. But in my view, they were saying, I'm having difficulty living in the present. My characters are not living in the present. They are haunted by something. And in Beethoven's case, he's aiming for something that is totally spiritual and clearly above ground. Well, as you say, Irrealis denotes this grammatical mood, but it reminds me, based on what you're saying about these artists and composers and uh, great thinkers, of these words that we might come across for which there are no easy one-to-one literal translations to English, say, like the Welsh word hiraeth, the Portuguese word saudade. Oh, yeah. Um, So how can being familiar, I don't know, with these lexical items be instructive for us? I mean, Irrealis is not, it's not nostalgia. It's not the same thing as nostalgia. Um, are you familiar with the with the Hebrew word malkosh? No, enlighten me. <laughs> I read about um, the word in an essay in the New Yorker by a writer named Ruth Ruth Margulit Ruth Margulit. Okay. And it's an essay called Unmothered, and it was it's a beautiful, poignant essay about her losing her mother. Um, and Malkosh has to do with the idea of the last rains in an arid place like Israel. The last rains you didn't know would be the last rains until you're standing in this arid landscape and you're hearkening back to the last time it rained that you just didn't realize would be the last time. Puts me in the mind of the pandemic too for a lot of reasons. But it's this idea of the last time you didn't know was the last time. And there's something about you as the 14-year-old boy in Alexandria having this mm. photograph taken. And you write, and, and I've, I've heard you talk about this idea of the 14-year-old you is still over there. And you're in New York City now in 2021. And it, it puts me in the mind of this idea of the last time you didn't know was the last time and time becomes this very fluid thing so i'm i'm trying to i think wrap a lot of my own points of of reference around irrealis and the 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 essays in the book but i kept jumping back to this idea of of malkosh i i can see i can see the point of course because as you're basically standing there. I suppose it's about 
um, a Jerusalem that's about to be invaded and emptied of its people, maybe, and or it's the last rain, as you say. You don't know it's the last rain, and but when you look back, what is it that you say to yourself? How didn't I know? Why didn't I guess that this was going to be the last time? And our lives are filled with these unfinished moments that you should have taken better stock of it. You should have logged it in somewhere in your memory better than you did. You should have lived it through, but you didn't. And so, and you 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 look back at this thing that never happened. And yet, and that's my theory, it continues to haunt you. That thing that you imagined happening never happened, but it has become a memory on its own right. And therefore you carry it with you. Unfinished business from the past is very difficult to live down. But it is the, what might have been, but sometimes it's expressed as, and what could still be. So there's also the potential for. Oh, yes. And, and in fact, that that's how I define it when I say something um, as in, for example, that sentence that I keep repeating in every single essay, the might have been that never happened, but could happen, though we wish it won't, but secretly hope it does. So that basically, we don't even know if we want this thing to happen or not. We don't even know if it will never happen, or if it has already happened, and we were never aware of that. I think, too, about the way that you evoke so many of these Beethoven, the composers and artists and authors, and think about the way that we turn to art to understand, or you turn us in your book, you turn us repeatedly to works of art to try to help us understand this concept. And you have said that the incidental details of a situation or how we approach a work of art each time becomes part of our response to that work of art. And time is this kind of hypothetical thing. And art, as you have said, is the expression of how we begin to sort of grab time, if we, whatever time means, <laughs> um, in some ways. That it's art that helps us to get a little bit of a foothold on our understanding of this very fluid idea of time in Arialis mood. I, I, I think so. I, I totally agree with what you say. It, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful reading and it's very flattering to an author to be understood so well. Um, I, I do think that time is one of those things that everybody talks about it. And yet, to be honest, do we know that it exists? Is there such a thing as time? Or let's turn it around. Does time even care what we think about time? It couldn't care less. We're imperfect. But if we didn't have watches and we didn't have the sun, uh, would we know what time is? Would we know? I mean, if we didn't have calendars, time happens to us. And I think that the only way in which we can register or attempt to register what is it that happens in time is through art. There is no other medium, no other facility for us to measure what happens to our lives through time. The other thing is that when you speak about time, we're really talking about one thing. 
and we speak about time because it's easier to speak about time, but anybody who thinks about time is also thinking about death and about your own death, which is totally an inconceivable concept. Um, your own death. Oh, you are going to be the, un the unusual person who will never die because everybody else dies, but you won't. And in fact, you can convince yourself of that. The, the, the point is that time is how we measure how close we get every single day to the end of time, which is the end of our lives. And so uh, art is in fact a way of playing with this, the, the attempt to get as close as possible to what is it that happens to us as we near death. And I think that Beethoven's example is the best one because as he's close to death and has just been sick and was given the impression that he had in fact survived, he will die soon after he composed this piece of music, which is basically, I don't want to die. I want this piece of music to keep going forever. That's why I'm not closing it as soon as I can. And it's, again, it's not a nostalgia. It's not just I hearken I back to my childhood or my adolescence or my 20s or whatever it is. I'm, I've been reading a lot about aging and a lot about getting older. I feel like the irrealis is something that m might be easier for me to perceive now at this stage in my life. And then I wish I'd considered irrealis more pointedly 30 years ago. Um, I think it would have made a big difference in, in my <laughs> life. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I was thinking about how it can relate to, in terms of how we face our mortality, but also how we face just the, the, the hardships in our lives. We think about something like post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, that that has the idea of time built into it, the trauma and the after trauma, what we, we think about as triggering. And irrealis is, it's really outside of time and space, but the idea of anticipation, as you say in your book, is a very interesting part of this concept. We rehearse being scared, you say. The anticipation of the moment is the moment. We anticipate and we are speculating, I think you've said, how how, how do we think about the things that we are afraid of and and it be, that becomes the moment is not the moment itself but the the moment of anticipation and that's all built into the notion of time it's just really so fascinating to me well i mean people rehearse i mean let's take for example let's take an easy example you're about to go on a date okay and if you've been on a few dates, you kind of say, I promise I won't talk about such and such and so and so. I won't bring the subject up. In fact, you're already rehearsing what the event is about to, to basically to produce. And then of, then, of course, as you're rehearsing, you're also remembering other dates you've been on when you basically mess things up and you promise to yourself you won't. So between these two terms that I've always sort of... Um, handled very poorly between rehearsal which is anticipating what's going to come and ritual which is the recollection of what has happened we find ourselves that basically we're unable to 
enjoy the moment in and of itself. There are people who will tell you that I live in the moment, I live in the present, but I don't know how to. And I don't think art is intended in any way to bring us there. It is in fact, art is the attempt to bypass any kind of uh, limitations that time imposes on us. It is also a way of bypassing what I consider to be death. Um, art is essentially the illusion that we figured these things out or that we are about to figure them out and that we are now giving death the slip, as it were. Well, that reminds me of your the short series of essays in your book about the films of Eric Romer, one of the French New Wave filmmakers, whose work you really, really admire. This impossibility of the present. It's this this moving target that is desire. Um, yeah. This is, these are essays about these films that that are so appealing because of the way the characters also are considering life and love and dating and sex and death. Um, the idea of the characters, they sort of embody... Uh, well, a saying. <laughs> they embody talking things through, talking about things and trying to figure them out, I suppose, in real time. But they're talking uh, they're talking about things, um, I'll say it, that they long for. I know that that opens up another box for us to talk about, um, longing and yearning and the difference. But really, there's the idea of these films as where these characters embody the uh, a time and a space for us to be able to see how people talk these things through not to do the things but to anticipate them i i that's why i like so much romer's films because a lot of people accuse romer of being um too cerebral or people talk too much uh, in fact, what they're doing is they're exploring or excavating um, what is it that they really want from someone else. Um, the, the three men in this particular sequence, they all are put face to face with a woman who is not their chosen woman. It's not their wives. It's not the woman they're about to marry and so on and so forth. But they are challenged by this other person. And they want something from that other person, but they don't know what exactly. At some point, the man in Claire's knee is obsessed with the idea that what he wants is not the person, just the knee, which is almost fetishistic. But it's it's, it's essentially, it's a way of um, these characters are confronted with something that they cannot name. And therefore it has no place in the present. It just is fluid about them and it hovers over their heads and they can't figure it out and they talk because they want to find out what they realize is that talk is itself a way of getting close to someone in fact much closer with talk than with sex in some cases and they are aware of that and so each one has a reason for not having sex although they're totally mature people and they've had long lives and have long experiences with people of the opposite sex but it's not what they want in that particular case 
And that has always been my problem because there are many times when I'm confronted with uh, a possibility of something happening, a job, a person, a piece of a work of art or a travel possibility. And I am arrested because do I want to travel to this place? I should. Everybody tells me I should. But do I really want to? I don't know. I might as well try it, but we'll see. And at the last minute, of course, as in Roma's films, I chicken out. I don't want to go. I should have gone. And in retrospect, I will regret not having gone. But I don't want to go now. But and I it's this kind of air, that's this gray zone that inhabits all of us that I'm trying to give a name to, and there's no name to give to it. There's no name, but I feel like we're a little closer to understanding it, to be able to to look at these works of art and think in terms of the rehearsal versus the actual execution of whatever the activity is, whatever the situation is. Um, so I'm thinking too about um, the word vintage, which you mention in the essay elsewhere on screen. Uh -huh. I found that so interesting. There's the, the, you know, the denotation of vintage, but it also connotes many things. Um, and the, the, uh, so this word reboot, the, the reboot of, of something old and recovering something um, sort of out of time and bringing it into the present time. But it's because of this sort of obsession we have with, the past or thinking back or trying to recapture something back there. And you discuss this in this essay where you also say all great art invariably lets us say the same thing. This was really about me. Uh -huh. How is it that we can understand this idea via this lens of the Arealis? I mean, this is an idea that we understand those of us who read books and see films and and appreciate the great composers but can you put a finer point on it because I feel that there's something very instructive there in this sort of texture of our understanding of the arealis of all great art let's just say the same thing and that that is that this was really about me but it is I mean that's the that's the the presumption of anybody who is a writer or even a painter or a composer is that you presume that what you're about to examine is, is of course about yourself, but you assume that this self is going to radiate and speak to a lot of other people. In fact, to, if you're lucky, to all mankind, because what you're saying is true to everyone. I mean, let's take a simple example. Um, as you probably know, I'm a fetishist because I love to collect um, aftershave lotions. I've written yeah. about aftershave lotions mm -hmm. and so on. What happens to an old bottle when it's finished, when I have no use for it because it's now empty? What do you do with a bottle of this very expensive aftershave or whatever you want to call it? You keep the bottle. Why are you keeping the bottle? What do you want with the bottle? It, it's empty. It has no function whatsoever, but you cannot part with it. And we do this with everything. In other words, we don't want to part with things that have absolutely no purpose in our lives. We will never use them. And we will wish if somebody threw them out, we won't even know that they were thrown out. So 
there's this this kind of remnants that sort of linger on in our lives. And I think, of course, the package of memories that we have, these are remnants too. They have no function, they no purpose whatsoever, but we sort of hold on to them as if a part of our identity is lodged in the memories, a part of our identity is lodged in that bottle of perfume, which is now empty. Something of us has basically seeped out of ourselves and gone on to something else. And this happens all the time. And I think that one of the reasons why we like vintage things is that we believe that even if, let's say, let's say that we have acquired something that was built in 1940, I was not born in 1940, but there's some image in 1940 that speaks to me. And therefore, myself is already lodged in this 1940, way before my time. And that's why I wrote the essay on John Sloan and that wonderful view of Greenwich uh, Village, because I was not in New York in those in 1922 when he painted the subway on the l uh it has nothing to do with me it's not my my problem it's not my issue but somehow i can see very easily that i am walking down the street under the l it could be me easily and therefore i like this painting it may be a dreadful painting but it speaks to me about something about me that could not be me and I'm sure that this is true of so many people, that we encounter something that is us and could not be us, but suddenly speaks to us. Um, a lot of people, I like to say this because it made me very happy. A lot of people write to me every day, an email will come about how my book, Call Me By Your Name, has basically told them something about themselves when I had no idea who they were but somehow something of me and the, the way I've portrayed the human psyche has allowed somebody else to take a view of their own psyche and say, yeah, that's exactly what happened to me when I'm attracted to somebody else. But it is so recursive, isn't it? Because the more specific the detail <laughs> it is about you, the more universally appreciated it is. And then, I mean, it, it does sort of come sort of come back on itself and I, I, that's a very beautiful idea it it, it is true and, and in fact you, I, I think i've even said this in another essay where the more particular you are about your own self if it's written in a particular way that opens up the sentence then everybody else can sort of say can work their way into that sentence and say yes i understand exactly what he's doing this is me and in other words, the more particular and specific you are about yourself, somehow the more universal it becomes. But you have to also craft this so that somebody else can slip in your sentence or your story or your novel or whatever. Uh, there are ways of doing that. Yes, yeah, so there's a very fine line between being so completely idiosyncratic or, right. or quirky. <laughs> you know, it sort of goes to the other... Weird. You know, weird is a yeah. good word. <laughs> it can actually lock somebody out of the experience if it's not if yes. you're not careful to uh, to craft the expression of it. Um, so speaking of writing, in the essay Almost There, you write, I am an almost writer. You don't say, I am almost a writer. You say, I am an almost writer. 
how does this idea help us understand Euryalus? The word reflects like this um, worldview where nothing is certain, all things written can be rescinded, you say, or taken right. to mean the very opposite or almost the very opposite. Well, I mean, there are almost writers and there are not almost writers. And, and I, I, of course, I play with the idea that I'm almost a writer, but I put it in front so that it would sort of also capture the opposite meaning, which is I am a writer who likes to use the word almost a lot. And uh, for one reason is that it, I use it because it has a particular rhythm. It adds uh, two syllables to a sentence. You may think that's immaterial, but it is quite material because it, it gives a sentence a particular flow. But at the same time, it prevents you from saying something that is too definitive or too um, located in facts. An almost sentence, like an almost pregnancy, which we all make fun of, um, is, is a way of saying, yes, but I'm not sure that. I want to take it back just in case I'm wrong. And I think that that is how I write. I write because I'm a very insecure person. And so every time I say something, I want to make sure that I'm not saying it too um, clearly because then I'm going to be held to that. I want to give myself the slippage out of it in case I want to retract it because I might change my mind tomorrow. So almost sort of opens up possibilities that are not sort of um, tethered to facts. And that again is, is my position vis-a-vis -vis time. Time can be reduced to a fact, but I don't like facts. Uh, I'm not good with facts. I'm not good with certainties. Um, I mean, I like the, the kind of person who would say, um, um, I like what you did. Did you really, you ask? Yeah, I wouldn't tell you if I didn't like it. Well, that kind of statement is, I've never been able to say something like that. I wouldn't tell you that if I didn't mean it. I, I don't know how to say that because everything I say might have a kind of forked tongue. It might mean the opposite of what I've said, or might I might change my mind tomorrow. So I, I don't have that kind of assurance vis-a-vis -vis the facts of life, vis-a-vis -vis life itself. I just started our interview by saying, I don't even know if time exists. Hmm. Now, what kind of an idiot would say such a thing? Well, it's it's unfair to keep asking you to distill this idea and express it in just the, the most simple terms. And the book might seem on the surface very esoteric for some people but it's really not once you you go to the first page and read through it the examples that you use of particularly the works of art to explain the idea of irrealis it just it all becomes so real and accessible so i've been thinking a lot about well, quotidian things, just the everyday things of life, and uh, maybe I'm in my head too much, but but then I I can zoom out a little bit and think about some of the things we've all experienced as a nation in the United States recently. This I, these ideas around um, 
well the the pandemic the uh-huh. impeachment um the second one the insurrection um and all of these things and here in texas the the disastrous weather that we had last week um yeah. so i'm i keep thinking about the idea of of, of let's say the pandemic especially for someone like you who travels so much. Um, I think even moving through New York City where you live now must be just a totally different experience and it's probably been that way for just about a full year for you. Yeah. But I feel too that it gives us the, the idea of this grammatical mood of Irealis gives us, again, another foothold or another way to sort of manage this moving target that is life when so many different things are happening to us. Talk about rehearsing fear, the anticipation now of what else, what else could could go wrong. And I wonder about the ways that working on the book, which obviously I know you've worked on since before all of these things occurred, but how you are now thinking about the book as you've done all of these uh, Zoom events and readings and things and how people are trying to get in, in touch with this new reality because they understand the concept of irrealis. Well, I, I think that a lot of people, I mean, they, they write to me and they, they, they understand what I'm doing. Um, it's, it's not a philosophical notion by any means. Uh, but it does suggest, I mean, when we had September 11, for example, or January 6, or the snowstorm, as you said yourself, in Texas, um, these are events that happen in history. And, um, and they have specific dates attached to them, like January 6 has a specific date. And there are people who will write about that and who will be able to engage with January 6th or with 9-11 and so forth. Um, I don't know how to. In other words, I, I'm much more um, sort of alien to immediate experience. I just try to see, for example, what is it that January 6th plays out from my knowledge of world history? And there are some significant examples. And that's how I come to it. What does 9-11 mean? Uh, when I wrote about 9-11 for the New York Times once, I used the example of the Persian invasion of ancient Greece, and because that's how it speaks to me. So I, I need to be always distanced from the immediate experience that everybody has and sees on television, because for me, it, it acquires a greater meaning once I see it from the, 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 the vision. For example, January 6th for me is exactly what happened in Germany in 1933. Uh, it was it, or in 1938, which is even worse than 33. Uh, these are moments that reverberate. In other words, it is a repetition of something that has already occurred and clearly is likely to occur again and again as we go down history. Um, that's how I see things. I don't see the here and now and the, the, the immediate reported facts. I leave that to journalists and to other writers. Um, one of the criticisms that was made of, of my novel, Eight White Nights, which is set in New York, is that there was no mention of 9-11. And clearly it was written after 
because it had no bearing on the story I was writing. That's the real reason. I lived through 9-11, so I know what it was like, and it was awful, but not when I'm writing. So I'm always looking for a kind of distancing from the immediate things. And that's why I said, you know, the ultimate distancing is when you say there is no time. Time doesn't care about us. Time couldn't care less what we think of time. Andre Asiman, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Really, really very appreciated myself. Andre Asiman is the author of Homo Irealis. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.